0: Hey there, good evening. Thanks so much for joining us or I guess whatever time it is for you. It tends to be late evening as I'm recording and editing these things, but really glad you could join us for this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. Indoor ag is the topic for today's show and a very popular topic especially in the media and conversations about the future of agriculture. And understandably so, I mean many of our agricultural problems could be solved If we could fully control the environment in which we farm and we could produce our food close to where it's ultimately going to be consumed. But of course, it's not quite that simple, right? Land, labor, energy costs all tend to be much more expensive in indoor systems. We're limited also on what types of crops we can grow at scale in in these types of systems, and there's the fact that massive food systems have been established and optimized for efficiency over several decades for the old ways of doing things. Still, Indoor ag has more than proven it has a place in the future of agriculture, at least in my opinion. And before we get to our featured guest today, which is Jim Pantaleo, I wanted to share a clip from another guest. This is from episode 191 a couple of weeks ago with investor and radical growth operating partner Mickey Seibel. We covered so much ground in that episode from tech to startups to rural connectivity to regenerative agriculture i just thought that this clip about indoor ag in that conversation would be a better fit for this episode here ahead of when you hear from jim i asked mickey at this point about an article she had written in defense of the importance of indoor agriculture have a listen
1: Uh, I wrote the article in response to an article that said, no, indoor ag can't feed the world. And really that article had been about this one particular part of indoor agriculture, which are these vertical farms, which are fully enclosed, no ambient light. And it's a new architecture for indoor growing. So the jury is still out whether or not that can be done at scale because these new vertical farms are highly energy intensive And it remains to be seen if you can be economically positive growing in that particular architecture. But I think what was getting missed in a lot of this technology debate about can indoor ag feed the world is that there was this promise that it alone can feed the world. And no, as, as you pointed out, there's multiple production systems that we need to feed the world. I had looked at the indoor farming industry a couple of times, actually. I had looked at it when I was at Orange and had co-written some stuff with Comet Labs on uh, the rise of AI and machine learning in, in indoor agriculture. And we had looked at indoor agriculture investments when I was at Social Capital. And in, in writing this article, I had just come back from a trip to the Netherlands where I had the opportunity to spend a week touring around the whole agri-food sector. And the Netherlands, by and large, most of what they grow is produced indoors food in, in addition to um, the pretty tulips and horticulture products that they're also famous for growing. And I think my back of the napkin estimate was that they're a pretty significant portion of the EU food supply is being grown in indoor farming. And when you look at, I think what a lot of people miss in this argument is that indoor growing is actually already a very significant production method in, uh, in, in our food system. When you look at at crops like tomatoes and peppers, 20, 30 years ago, that was all grown outdoors. Now, probably more than half, if not the majority of tomatoes, peppers, cucumbers that you get in a grocery store are grown indoors. So indoor farming is definitely already a significant portion. I think what the the aha moment for a lot of indoor growers, there's sort of a couple of of macro trends that are making it an even more viable thing. One is that where we built the existing indoor farms and in the US we do about 1900 hectares of indoor farming. But if you look at a, a country like Spain, they're doing about 75,000 hectares under glass. And the Netherlands is doing, I mean, the Netherlands is tiny, and they have 25,000 or so hectares of indoor growing. But we built these indoor farms, they were built because people were tomato farmers and pepper farmers, and they built indoor farms on their farm. So now they could produce year round. What indoor growing affords us the opportunity to do, and what we're starting to see with the the more startup companies that are in the indoor growing space, the the Bright Farms, the Plenties, the Edenworks of the world, is that now you can take these crops out of the ground and make them location independent. Rather than growing the tomato where the tomato farm was, which is the ideal geography where it could be grown, you can now grow it anywhere closer to the point of consumption. And that plays into the macro trend of wanting more transparency in the supply chain Because now you can cut out a lot of those middle parts of the supply chain and go direct to your retail customer. So you can build the greenhouse at the distribution center for the retail grocer. Or in some cases, you see examples like uh, Gotham Greens and their greenhouses uh, near their Whole Foods, who's a customer. So now you, you can take crops and make them location independent. You're growing them at the point of consumption and you have the opportunity now to grow a tomato or a leafy green that the Salinas Valley of California is the ideal condition, but you can create the ideal condition for the plant. Now there's a whole bunch of things you can do that you couldn't do before. When you can create the ideal condition for the plant, A, the seed breeders don't have to breed it to be drought tolerant or you know tolerant to high salt soil you can lose those traits in the genome in flavor of taste and flavor and things that consumers would demand. The other thing that that you can do, uh, you've shortened the supply chain, now you're growing tasty product, you can grow it for health traits. Um, One thing that we still have to prove out though is the energy. It still takes a lot of electricity to run those lights Um, you can trick plants into thinking that they are not subject to a 24 hour growing cycle. You can make the day as long or as short as you want. And when you start playing with those kinds of variables, I think there are some very interesting growth outcomes that you can have. So I'm very bullish on the future of indoor ag. Um, It's also an ideal environment for ag tech products. You don't have to build products that are as ruggedized. You can almost guarantee that there's a Wi-Fi network. So you can start doing big data um, inside of a, a controlled environment. And you've got a whole cannabis industry that has been testing these products and and trying to be as energy efficient as possible for, you know, the last 10 or 15 years.
0: So that's very interesting perspective. It's an investor perspective by Mickey there. And I think she makes a really compelling case. Next, you're going to hear from more of a practitioner's perspective, that of indoor vertical farming advisor, writer, and consultant, Jim Pantaleo. Now, you probably noticed that Mickey's comments included greenhouse production, which has traditionally been the vast majority of indoor agriculture. We also discussed those growing methods back in episode 71 and episode 185 with Joe Swartz of American Hydroponics. So if you want to learn more about that specifically, check those out. Jim's focus is more on the high-tech, fully indoor growing systems. Uh, that's my description, not his. I hope you don't mind, Jim. Jim is a great story. After 20 years in the technology business, over half of that with Hewlett Packard, he was approaching his 50th birthday, which prompted him to reflect on how he wanted to spend the second half of his life. That ultimately led him to thinking about the biggest problems his kids would have to face, problems such as resource scarcity, climate change, and a growing population, Problems that you often hear us talk about on this show and in agriculture in general. Jim discovered indoor farming in 2014 and kind of went all in on building his network, doing pro bono consulting in the space, and learning every aspect of the indoor agriculture business. He's worked with companies such as Urban Produce, Intelligent Growth Solutions, and Oasis Biotech. He writes regularly for Urban Ag News and assists with the coordination of Indoor AgCon, which is the premier indoor agriculture conference for the business and technology of growing crops in, in indoor systems. In fact, Jim actually has facilitated a discount for you, listeners of this show. So stay tuned for details after the interview. Uh, a little bit of a warning here: something did not get recorded exactly right on my end in this in this interview. So Jim's audio is not exactly the best. We we have made significant strides on improving the audio quality of the show. Those those of you who are longtime listeners know that and have heard me talk about it. But I I messed up on this one. I'm not sure what I did wrong, but I, but I messed this one up. So feel free to cuss me while listening, but please do listen. I learned a ton from this episode and I think you will too. So stick with it and feel free to write me an an angry email later about the sound not holding up to standard. That's fine, but don't miss out on this great content. I know you're going to enjoy this one. Here's Jim Pantaleo. He starts by describing what drove him to jump headfirst into indoor agriculture. The data
2: scared me, and I, I I have two children. They're in college now, and I just thought about well, in in twenty five years or thirty now. We're almost at twenty twenty, aren't we? So, in, in another thirty years, when they're my age, what you know? What's the supply chain going to look like? Where's the food going to come from? How are we going to feed that additional three billion people? And so that's what really kind of it scared me. And so I think my motivational factor beyond the perhaps being seduced by the pink lights, which I often say, which if you've seen indoor vertical farms, they can look like a, you know, like a discotheque or a a rave party because the colors are just beautiful. But I think beyond that, it was the data, Tim, that really moved me to take action. And ultimately, uh, again, for anybody in this world that wants to make a difference, you know, I really felt that. Actually feeding people was important. And so that's what, that's what really motivated me. On top of the fact that you do have a lot of different disciplines in indoor vertical farming i mean i'm a I'm a formerly software guy again, so you've got you know the disciplines of computer science you've got automation and robotics engineering, if you will, you've obviously got the biology part, so there's just lots of different disciplines and as I tell young people who I speak to, this is not your grandfather's farm, and we need your skill set, whether you're a coder or whatever it may be from a technology perspective, this industry is ripe, no pun
0: intended, for your skills. So that's what, that's what caught me, Tim. Yeah, that makes sense, and, and I 100 percent agree on the need for those skills from a cross section of, of of backgrounds and expertise.s One place it definitely, I would think, differs from technology is in terms of like the potential margins that can be found. Whereas like, a SaaS software, you know you c- you can make pretty big margins for for a head of lettuce is probably a little bit more difficult. Are, are we seeing that where like investors that are coming into the space and investing like it was a tech company are realizing that the market Margins are not there, or are there a lot of opportunities out there?
2: No, they are, and that's, that's a great question because when you think about crops and you think about viable crops for indoor farms right now in 2019, you know lettuce, leafy greens, microgreens, herbs, that's your, that's your play right now because from a technical perspective, photonically speaking, the micromoles per square foot or the light energy that you need is minimal. Compared to what 's required for fruiting plants, fruiting plants right now, tomatoes, strawberries, peppers, cucumbers that is the moonshot, as we say that 's the holy grail right now, where again technologically speaking we 're not there yet with LED lights, so when we think about the light energy that 's needed we 're not there yet it, you can you can You can go through the three processes of growing so you get your You get your seed to germinate, you get your true leaf, right, your first portion of that, then you get your flower, and then, of course, the next one is your fruit. And we can do all three of those, but we can't do fruit in large scale. Of course, in greenhouses, you can do it all day long, and it's being done and it has been done for 100 years. But with respect to pure indoor vertical farming, just growing with LED lights, we're not there yet. We will get there. And just simply stated, when we're talking about photonic energy micromoles per square meter and again light energy you're creating too much heat on the plant and then in the environment if you will and you're inhibiting what you're trying to do which again if you're creating more heat you got to add more ac or mitigate that heat in some way and that's a cost so when we get to the point where we can have enough light energy to get our three processes truly flower and fruit then we're we're there there we'll be, we'll be pulling blueberries out of warehouses by the bucketful and that's where we need to be I, th- I think we're two to five years away from that and there's a lot of great research going towards it with people like NASA and major universities around the world including right here in our country
0: yeah and, and what yes. what has you optimistic about the the timeline of getting there
2: well just the research I am part of, again, I mentioned the University of California. I was part of a very interesting gathering a few months ago at the Biosphere 2 in Arizona. And the Biosphere, as you may recall, was built 25, 30 years ago to do experiments on controlled environment agriculture where they put, eight scientists into the biosphere and left them for 24 months and, and 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 mayhem ensued, as they say, but they certainly learned a lot. Lots at the biosphere a few months ago, it was a gathering with the USDA, with industry, and with academia, and the goal was to pull money, if you will, from the current Farm Bill to be used for research with these kinds of uh, programs in mind. So Specifically, there's a $10 million grant now being pulled from the Farm Bill for tomato research, and obviously tomato is a fruiting plant, to get to a controlled environment version of a tomato, again, beyond the greenhouse, think a warehouse or think a shipping container, so no natural sunlight. If we can get there, and if some of these great universities and other folks like the major indoor farms in this country, which I can tell you the big three now, which you may know is AeroFarms, Bowery Farming, and Plenty, are playing with many hundreds of millions of dollars in venture capital. If we can get there, as well as the major universities, with the help of the USDA and with the help of Farm Bill money, we can do it. And I think that, again, the moonshot, if you will, our fruiting plants, because everybody can grow lettuce and 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 wheatgrass and microgreens in the tonnage all day long, but we need to do that with you know peppers and
0: strawberries and cucumbers et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, and right now, you said the biggest uh, challenge there is is going to be the the, the lights.
2: Correct. That's your main focal point, obviously, you need to have an, enough micromoles per square meter, photonic energy, light energy, to allow that plant to naturally grow as it does. And it's, you know, as I mentioned, true leaf, flower, and then the fruit itself. And that fruit, you know, it's been done. My first farm, I mentioned urban produce. We had a lab and we were testing uh, strawberries and we were able to get the fruit. We were able to get it. Hour. and so again, you want to you want you want to be competitive with what's in the field and we'll get there. We'll get there. It's going to be a matter of time.
0: Yeah. It, it, how about on the genetics? Are there seed companies that are doing a good job of optimizing their genetics for indoor growing?
2: Hundred percent. Yep. Hundred percent. So that's a great question too. So I can tell you that I was in it's public knowledge, so I'm, I'm not breaking any rules here. So I was involved in a three month seed trial with Bayer. While at Oasis Biotech, Sonon Bio in Las Vegas, and they gave us two cultivars of, of lettuce to attempt to grow in a pure indoor environment with liquid nutrients, so LED lights and liquid nutrients. Our three-month trial netted some pretty good results. Ultimately, we we didn't grow a great head of lettuce, but we certainly learned a lot. So Bayer has been fantastic in uh, assisting. Indoor farms with providing seed bred for pure indoor vi- environments because the seed we get now is all uh, uh, about you know outdoor environments so we need seed that reacts to liquid nutrients we need seed that reacts to a different type of of light energy, and so Bayer is, is one of them that are doing a lot of work. I can say that I've been very fortunate to be invited to the last few American Seed Trade Association conferences, ASTA, through the uh, gracious invitation of Andy Levine, the president of ASTA, where they're really wanting to focus on it. But know this, Tim, is that that seed breeding endeavor is a long one. It could take anywhere between 7 and 10 years to breed the appropriate seed So for indoor environment. So Some of the seed companies are are watching to see what happens to this nascent embryonic industry. Some of them are dipping their toes in, like Bayer and others. And so that's very helpful. It's very helpful for this industry. And I'm fortunate, again, to have been a part of some of these trials and, and want to stay involved with them.
0: Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I had yeah. I, I've heard somewhere along the way, and, and there's so much misinformation out there that I'm not challenging you, but hoping you can set me straight here. Is, is there is, is there anything to the argument that there that there are less nutrients if you don't have like soil and sunlight? Yeah, no, that's
2: all, uh, I was going to say poppycock or malarkey, which are two words I've heard used in the last few days. That's poppycock and malarkey because, you know, as as somebody smart once told me, a nitrogen atom is a nitrogen atom is a nitrogen atom. And so ultimately, when you can control your nutrient inputs, you know, you can tr- you control it. So, in fact, I would even go as far as saying that some, if not most crops grown indoors at the moment can have a, a higher nutritional value than stuff grown in the field. But i, I always up for debate, but no, I, I truly believe that there is no degradation in nutrients when you're growing indoors because, again, you're controlling that environment.
0: Right. Yep, that makes sense. And we've had Irving Fane from Bowery Farming on the show, and and Doctor oh, yeah. Doctor Nate Story, who's now with Plenty, but at the time was with Bright AgriTech early on on the show. I haven't had Arrow Farms yet, but it sounds like they're the next one we need to get. Uh, but but obviously the, those you know the three the big ones like that, are, or maybe like a, um, a Gotham Greens. It, you know, comes to mind like they, names you hear a lot in the industry yes, ag space. Is that where most of the growth in production is coming from, or is it coming from you know smaller players that you just don't hear about in the headlines because there's so many of them?
2: Yeah, no, you're right. You're right, Tim. Obviously, the big three: Bowery, Plenty, and Arrow Farms, and I and I know Irving and, and Nate Well that they are they are leading the way. Um, But again, there are smaller, less... Less known farms that are also doing very good things. Viraj Puri is the CEO of Gotham Greens, and most recent news is they've just opened up a new farm on the East Coast, which will really meet the needs of people there in the winter time. Which goes back to the whole food miles situation that folks in cold cold areas of our country have to deal with, with kind of wilty lettuce or not really top quality because it's been in a truck for a week. But yeah, no, the the answer to that is that there are small guys, but you know those small guys are are doing good work and i would I would say this that for anybody that really feels that they can start a farm, if you will. You know, I say go for it. You know, you don't need a hundred plus million bucks like some of these folks uh, have in in their coffers. You just need to have enough space. You need to have a a, a good customer base and you need to go grow. And I I break this down into three very simple words. quality volume and consistency if you can grow a quality product in volume consistently you are right there and 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 i also break it down to three markets if you will you can grow for a plate like in a restaurant or selling to a produce distributor you can grow for a shelf, like in a grocery store something in a clamshell or a bag and you can grow for a product I mentioned PepsiCo earlier. When I was with Urban Produce, we grew copious amounts of wheatgrass. That product went into the Naked Juice product, which is a Pepsi product. And so you can grow for a plate, you can grow for a shelf, or you can grow for a product. I kind of like the product view because I don't think that indoor farmers right now are really focused on the PepsiCo's of the world, if you will, or Adwalla, V8, Boathouse Farms, those kind of guys.
0: I, I just saw an article. I didn't read it. I just saw the headline, but it was talking about what a great place for ag tech Los Angeles is becoming. And I was kind of surprised to see that that headline. I think it was from AgFunder. Tell us about kind of the ag tech scene in L.A. Yeah, so it's a good question. So I'm here in, in,
2: in Orange County, just an hour north of Los Angeles. And, you know, there have been some. There's been some fits and starts, and unfortunately we had a failure here a year ago with my friends at Local Roots Farms. Local Roots Farms w- was in Los Angeles, and they had roughly nine shipping containers in a very large warehouse, and they had some some, some great, uh, doing some great work. Unfortunately, the it kind of got upside down with their numbers, and I don't, I don't want to comment, you know, at all as to, to to why they had to close. But unfortunately, they 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 didn't make it. You know, when you look at the major costs of indoor farming, there's three of them that are that will jump right out at you. Number one is your building costs. Number two are your labor costs, and number three are your energy costs. So you want to be sure that you're, you either own your building or it's, it's super cheap in terms of your lease. You want to ensure that you've made your capital equipment expenditures up front so you can save on your labor. Things like a cutting machine, a batch mixer if you're using any kind of substrate versus pure hydroponics, a seeding machine if you will. So capital equipment is really important, and then energy. In terms of of you know, we talked about lights. That's going to be your number one energy drain, if you will. And so ensuring that your your kilowatt hours uh, and the yield that you get per kilowatt hour is is is, is, is appropriate then then you 're in good shape, but that 's why you see, for example, Aero Farms and Bowery being in 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 places like Newark, New Jersey, Kearney, New Jersey, where you know the, 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 the tax base there is needed and welcomed, and you can find real estate that is you know better than say New York City or San Francisco or what have you. Of course, Plenty is in South San Francisco, which their moniker is known as the industrial city. South San Francisco, the industrial city. So you do have a lot of warehouse space down in South San Francisco, too. So those are things that you really need to keep in mind when we're talking about the math on on indoor vertical farming.
0: And what about in terms of automation? It would seem to me, you know, this could become uh, farming indoors. You can't use your traditional farm equipment, at least not all of it. And so automation would be a big deal. As the industry grows, automation will sort of need to grow with it.
2: Yeah, 100%. 100%. So there's a couple companies to look at now that are focused on the automation part as well as uh, some great universities. So here in California, Northern California, the the big story is Iron Ox. Iron Ox has made the statement that they are the first fully automated indoor vertical farm. And then just a few miles away from them in Santa Clara is a new startup called 1.1, O-N-E, P O I N T 1.1, and they're also doing great things with automating the, the entire vertical farming process. From a university perspective, look no further than, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it as I think it's supposed to be pronounced, Wageningen, Wageningen University in the Netherlands, are doing some very good work with respect to automation And, of course, you see companies that are following suit and engaged with them, a Dutch company called Priva, P-R-I-V-A, doing great things, Argus Controls, and a few others. And, And, of course, when you look at their main customer base now, primarily greenhouse growers, and think in your mind's eye, Tim, that robot that's going down a row of Green peppers and the thermo imaging camera is looking at who's ripe and who's not, and then that that arm comes out and grabs that one that's ripe, sticks it in the the barrel, and away we go. So those kind that kind of technology is, is absolutely there, and that that I believe is the future. I don't know how many folks it will put out of work, but I do know that it will also put folks to work whether it's in the manufacturing process of this or the management of it. You need smart folks and folks to handle the, the, the automation aspect of your farm. So that is 100% coming, and is, is, is almost nearly here now. And that, of course, is the side of, of ag tech, if you will, or precision agriculture, which, as, as we know, is, is becoming more prevalent in outdoor farming, whether that's sensor technology, whether that's drone technology, thermal imaging, et cetera.
0: I want to circle back to something you were talking about earlier in a different context. You were, you were talking about trying to maybe attract some of the resources from the Farm Bill into in indoor ag and vertical farming. Or have we seen an uptick in resources into R&D and, and support for these types of farming methods? Yes, sir. That's a great question.
2: So in the 2018 Farm Bill, which... <laughs> I've read a big piece of, and I wouldn't recommend it for anybody that doesn't want to go to sleep after 10 minutes. But actually, I, I take that back. There are some pretty exciting parts of the farm bill. In the farm, in the 2018 farm bill, there's four, five, six areas that are are targeted specifically for what they're calling controlled environment agriculture, uh, urban farming. I don't believe they're using the word indoor vertical farming, but they're using controlled environment agriculture and, and urban farming as, as the words. At the moment, Tim, there's about $50 million from the 2018 Farm Bill allotted towards those, the definition of CEA and urban farming. And as I mentioned, Part of the um, grant writing group that i 'm associated with are looking to get their first ten million dollars from the fifty to work on tomato research in controlled environments, which again is as I mentioned that moonshot. so I believe for the first time you know in the in the very short history of indoor vertical farming, the USDA in particular is absolutely behind the initiative of course there's lots of other areas of farming that need help we all know that but uh, 50 million bucks is is a, is a great number and you know i think that as we move forward and some of these grants get written and the the research research begins we're, we're going to be in good shape Around the table, I should mention at the USDA meetings that I've been invited to, you'll find not only industry, so the Boweries, the Plenty's, the AeroFarms of the world, but you'll also find folks like Cornell, the University of Arizona's Controlled Environment Ag Center, University of Florida, Colorado State, uh, Cal Davis, all the big ag schools are at the table, and they all want to partake of that farm bill money as they should. So, yep, we're going to get there.
0: And, and you've been at this like five years now on on uh, looking at these issues, you know, it, it, as you reflect back on that. And so after you already had the revelation about how important this was and the data stuck, you know, jumped out at you, like you said, since that time, though, what, what's been the biggest surprise to you about this? The biggest surprise really has been, I don't know if surprise
2: is the word, but I don't know if Challenge is the word either, but I think that, you know, maybe the biggest challenge, I guess I'll use the word challenge, uh, is that it it reminds me, and I'm old enough to remember this, and maybe you are too, it reminds me of 25 plus years ago when the dot-com era came into play, and you had a whole bunch of folks that were trying to get on the bandwagon, and, and you remember some of the funky names of companies, Blue Martini or whatever. You had a, a, a lot of successes, whether that was the Googles and the Yahoos and the others of the world, and then you also had a lot of failures. And so I believe that this particular industry, it it reminds me a little bit of that, where you have this green rush, as we call it, and you get a lot of people coming into the industry that may or may not have farming skills or knowledge. And I certainly didn't when I got in, but I made damn sure that I knew what I was talking about after that first year, because I, I needed to be literate in horticulture, I needed to be literate in lighting, I needed to be literate in environmental controls. When we look at the industry today, and I mentioned the failures of, well, urban produce and local roots farms. There was another initial failure in Atlanta a few years ago with a container company called Podponics. I think that it's just part of the natural progression of an industry. And, again, if we use if we use the dot-com era, that's a, a good barometer. Now, you mentioned Irving Fain. Uh, I should tell you that I'm a, a content chairman and a speaker wrangler for Indoor AgCon, which is the big event that happens in Vegas every year. Irving was our keynote speaker last year, and he just hit it out of the park. He used some amazing analogies and comparisons between the dot-com era and, and today and how that related to indoor farming specifically, he said that when Uber started, they had uh, two limousines uh, and three drivers in San Francisco. When uh, Netflix started, they were sending you CDs in the mail. When Amazon started, it was books online. And, And now look at all of them. We know who Uber is they're a global company. We know that, you know, Netflix has now got Oscar nominated uh, movies. And we know that Amazon with AWS, and my goodness, everything else that they're doing, they're not where they were 25 years ago. So, I think Irving's analogy of that was fantastic. And I would, I would sort of say, if you say what's surprising to you or what's challenging, it's, it's kind of that vibration that we're, we're, we're at a very nascent point in, the, in a new industry. And I believe in the future that we'll look back at this time in 20, 30 years from now, we'll, we'll say, well, we did it. We did it. We we can grow food indoors in in sub Saharan Africa or in in the Arctic or whatever. On the moon. Mars for goodness sakes. So it's there. We just we need some more time.
0: I think that's a great place to end it, Jim. Thank you so much for. Yes, your sir. I think that's uh, a very encouraging message, and certainly the thesis of this podcast is that there there is no one answer to the future of agriculture. Otherwise, this would be a one episode podcast, and now we're at 180 something episodes. So, well, there's a lot of answers, and and I definitely think that indoor ag is a part of the equation. And I'm excited to uh, watch your contribution to the industry because it's it's uh, it's it, you have a an infectious enthusiasm for this, and I appreciate you been on the show thank you tim it's my honor my pleasure and i'm so glad that you asked me today my my, my great pleasure Thank you so much to Jim. I really thought he shared some interesting insights about indoor agriculture, like topics such as the automation stuff and the farm bill, but also really some practical advice about how to make these systems pencil from a business perspective. As I mentioned at the top of the show, he also arranged for a special offer for us. Podcast listeners can save an additional $100 off early bird registration rates for indoor ag con when you use promo code FUTURE520. On my script here, it's got future all in capital letters. I don't know if that matters, but the word future and then the number 520 altogether future 520. That means you could save up to $400 off the full price pass held May 18th to 20th at the Wynn Las Vegas. Indoor AgCon is the premier event covering the business technology and innovation around growing crops in indoor systems, including hydroponic, aeroponic and aquaponic techniques. So, wow, $400 is a lot of money. So use the promo code, sign up right away, and go to Las Vegas. Have a great time, May 18th through 20th. Thank you so much for your time and your attention on this episode. I really do not take it lightly. I want to make this show the best it possibly can be for you and make it worth your while every week to listen. We'll be back again next week with another fascinating story of agricultural innovation.